we're in this mini-series on the Psalms, and last week we said that the Psalms are an anatomy of the soul. The Psalms are a gymnasium of the soul. They show us, through these prayers and songs, every human emotion, and they actually teach us how to express them. And a theologian named John Calvin actually took it a step further and said that the Psalms are a mirror. They show us our own selves, but, but they actually give us these prototypes for how we should express our emotions. And today we're looking at Psalm 42, which is a psalm of sorrow. It is a psalm that is written in the depths of depression. And I hate depression. I hate sorrow. I hate sadness. It has caused pain in my life and in the people that I love. And we live in a broken world. As Randy has already mentioned, we have a lot of reason for sorrow. The loss of a job, the loss of a parent, the loss of a child, a miscarriage, a broken heart. We have a lot of reasons to grieve. And sometimes we grieve for no reason at all. And what the Bible tells us is that we live in a broken world, and because of that, sometimes the godliest things that we can do is to grieve, is to bring our sorrows to the Lord. And scholars of the Psalms actually call this lament. And as you look at the book of Psalms, you see that there are prayers of sorrow all through the book of Psalms. They are laments that help us grieve our broken world in whatever way it is. Now, this sermon is not about the why of sorrow, the why of pain, the problem of depression. This sermon is not even about how to heal your depression or how to treat your sadness and sorrow. This is a sermon about what to do with and in your depression and in your sorrow. See, whether we struggle with what could be called a clinical depression or whether we just experience the sorrows of life, all of us have contact with the broken world, and so all of us have reasons to grieve. If it's not you this morning, then maybe next week it will be you. And so as we come to this, um, this subject, I just want to remind you that this is not meant to be the end-all, be-all answer to your grief. But this is looking to God's words to guide us on how to grieve and how to express our sorrow. So let's go to him in prayer as we do that. God of comfort, we need you in our broken world. Lord, we cry out to you. We ask for your healing. And Lord, we ask for your comfort in the midst of our pain. And so Lord, I pray that these words will be glorifying to you. And Lord, we pray that, we, you, that you will use these words to tune our hearts to sing your praise. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this week I saw the news and I saw that we, the world had lost Kate Spade. She had taken her own life. Now I didn't really know Kate Spade. I knew that she was famous. I knew that she was a designer. And, um, and so I thought, in light of this sermon, it made me think that even fame and fortune do not insulate us and protect us from depression. It reminded me that depression is indiscriminate in who it comes to and who it visits. And so I thought, you know, the, the illusion that if I just had enough money, if I just had fame, then I would be okay. I thought this... This exposes that that is actually a lie. But then Friday, 
I woke up and found that Anthony Bourdain had also taken his life. Now, this really hit me because I'm a huge fan of Anthony Bourdain. Um, I have read his books. I've watched his shows. I've followed him on and off camera. Um, and, I, and I felt like I knew him in some way. If you don't know who he is, um, he was a chef who wrote a best-selling book about working in kitchens. Then he had many different television shows where he traveled the world and he talked to people over a meal. And so here's the thing about Anthony Bourdain. I always would have said, you know, as I looked, as I watched his shows, he sort of comes across as this irreverent, bombastic guy. But actually, he's kind and empathetic. And what I learned from him is that he combines this, this heart for justice with an honesty about his own failings. And I found that to be really refreshing. And when I saw him talking to people over meals, I learned how to ask questions. And I saw that everywhere he went in the world, people opened their homes and their doors to him. People loved Anthony Bourdain. He had friends that loved him. He had colleagues that loved him. And as I looked at his life, many, many times I thought he has the dream job, traveling the world and eating food, <laughs> talking to people. This is, this is my dream job. And anytime someone asked, what's your dream job, I would say, well, Anthony Bourdain's job is my dream job. In fact, I recently took a, a, a personality diagnos, uh, diagnostic test, and I was reading the chapter on my personality, and it said the ideal job for my personality was Anthony Bourdain's <laughs> job, being the host of Parts Unknown. And so, so I had always admired him, but, but also kind of envied his job in some ways. He has this dream job. He's loved. And even when the, his colleagues from CNN announced his death, they, they had tears in their eyes. They loved him. And they said, why? Can you give us any information, anything more on why, what happened? And we asked this question, why? Um, I think because when we, when we see a high-profile person taking their own life, it exposes some things about our own our own lives, exposes some things about our culture. I think it, it exposes, um, on one hand, the lie that we're all tempted to believe, that if I just had some other life, then I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't suffer. If I just had fame or fortune, if I had enough money, if I didn't have to worry about bills, then the sadness wouldn't be a constant companion. Maybe we even think if I had the adventure if I had the ability to travel the world, to try the foods that I wanted to try, then I wouldn't suffer. If I had people who loved me, if I was admired and respected, I wouldn't suffer and I wouldn't have sorrow. So it exposes something about, about us. It exposes that, that depression is indiscriminate, that sadness and sorrow visit us all. And no matter what lifestyle we have, no matter what job we have, or how much success we have, we are still vulnerable to sorrow because we live in a broken world. But it also exposes something else about our lives. It exposes that in our culture, there's often not room for sorrow. There's not a lot of room for sorrow in our culture. And so that's why we, we hear in times like this that if you're struggling to reach out, talk to somebody, 
get help because we don't often talk about this in our culture. In fact, I think our culture tells us you should be happy all the time. And if you're not happy, then you should change. You should do something to become happy. We say to people, cheer up. Look at all the good things you have. Move on. Maybe we say stop moping. Just be a man and move past it. But I think most of the time what we say is just to not feel it. Just stuff that sadness. Just numb yourself to the sorrows of this world. And that will dry up your tears. I remember the, the hit show Mad Men uh, years ago. This show is about a successful um, advertising executive in New York in the 60s who kind of has it all. Um, yet he's a very stoic character. He is kind of the, the quintessential 20, 20th century man. Um, he's the anti-hero in this series. And in season three, one of his colleagues is admitted to the hospital. She's in a dark place. And he visits her. And his advice to her, I think, is, is the advice that many of us have probably heard. He looks at her in this hospital bed and he says, what do they want you to do? What do you got to do to get out of here? He says, whatever they ask, do it. Get out of here and move on. It never happened. It will shock you how much this never happened. Just move on. Just straight ahead into the future. Just numb yourself, shove the feelings, and move on. In a more comical way, um, a few years ago, there was a, a hit song from a Broadway musical, and it was called Turn It Off. Whatever those feelings are that you feel that you don't like, just turn them off. It says, you say you got a problem. Well, that's no problem. It's super easy not to feel that way. When you start to get confused because of thoughts in your head, don't feel those feelings. Hold them in instead. When you're feeling certain feelings that just don't seem right, treat those pesky feelings like a reading light and turn them off. Like a light switch, just go bap. Really, what's so hard about that? Turn it off. See, that's what, that's what our culture tells us to do with our feelings, with our sorrows. Turn them off. Move on. It never happened. It will shock you how much it never happened. But you know, in the church, I think many times in the church, there's not room for sorrow either, unfortunately. Um, I read a satirical website um, years ago, and the article, the headline said, every single person at church doing fine. <laughs> it was a report that went out, and, and then the, the quote from the article said, it's really quite spectacular, the pastor told reporters Tuesday. You would think, given the state of our fallen world, that at least one person would be going through a crisis or battling some kind of indwelling sin that they need help with, but not at this church. We're all doing fine, it seems. Praise the Lord. A few years ago, um, I was at a pastor's conference, and there was a very well-known pastor, maybe some of you even subscribed to his podcast, speaking to a room full of pastors. Probably 500 people were there. And from where I was sitting, it, it wasn't the back row, but it was close to the back. And, um, and this pastor said to a room full of pastors, is anybody here in a dark place? Is anybody here dry? Is anybody, you don't really feel the spirit at this point in your life, and you want to, but you're struggling. 
And I thought, and, and this was a every head bowed, every eye closed kind of thing. So everybody's eyes were closed. And he says, just trust me here. If that's you today, if you're feeling far from God, I want you to raise your hand. And I thought to myself, I'm, I'm feeling far from God. I'm, I'm feeling distant. I'm in a dark place. And surely there are more people here. So I raised my hand. And he said, now just trust me here. I'm going to ask everybody whose hands are raised to stand up. And I want everyone else to come alongside them and pray. And I don't really like to, you know, do the whole standing up, you know, kind of thing. But I'm like, at this point, he's seen my hand. I've got to go through with it. (laughs) And there's probably a lot of other people here doing the same thing. And I stand up. And I realize I am the only one standing. Maybe there's some people behind me. I, I heard some shuffling. But from the hundreds of pastors that I could see in front of me, staff, ministry leaders, I was the only one standing. And I say that not, not to celebrate my own authenticity. <laughs> but to show that, that pastors too know that it's always not safe. It's not always safe to be vulnerable in a room full of pastors. And the speaker, to his credit, said, many of you should have raised your hand, and you didn't. And that's just a subtle turn away from being known, a subtle turn away from the light, a subtle turn to stay in the darkness where you are. And I appreciated those prayers from other people coming around me. Um, a Christian psychologist um, named Dan Allender wrote a book that, with a guy named Trimper Longman that some of you may know, who, who until recently lived here in Santa Barbara. And in that book, they said this. They said, Christians are particularly adept at numbing themselves against painful emotions. After all, we reason, we should be joyful because we know that God is in control. Negative emotions such as fear, anger, or depression are stigmatized as inappropriate because God is love and grants us peace. And now I know that those words came out of the experience of counseling lots of people who, some were who believers in Jesus and some who weren't. And so in his experience, what he's saying is that even in the church, sometimes we have, we become particularly adept at turning it off at moving on. And so you may wonder, is there room for my sorrow at church? Here's the thing. We even do that with this psalm, Psalm 42. Um, If you look at the first verse, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. If you look that up on YouTube, the first hit that you'll find um, is a picture of, of this beautiful baby deer, like Bambi, drinking water from a stream. And it says, best, most heartwarming, heartwarming version of this song. And maybe you know the song. As the deer panteth for the waters. We see it as this beautiful, tranquil image. But in reality, it's the opposite. Psalm 42 opens not with a peaceful assurance of God's presence, but it opens with this desperate cry, where is God? See, this image is not a peaceful deer drinking from a stream. This is a deer that's wandering in the desert, that's dying of dehydration. This is a violent image. 
This is a deer that has its tongue hanging out of its mouth. Its ribs are showing. It's panting, looking for water because it knows if it doesn't get any water, it's going to die. It's gasping for breath. That's the image that this psalmist opens the psalm with. It's not a peaceful image. It's an image more like me last week when I was trying to cycle up Gibraltar Road. Almost to the top, I found myself out of shape, obviously, and also out of water. All to the point where I was, I was thinking, can I go on? And I'm checking the route. How far do I have to get until this segment is ended? Because what I, the reason I'm wanting to, to, to bike up Gibraltar is to improve my standings. Um, if you're familiar with, with this app called Strava, you turn it on when you cycle, it tracks your progress, and it publishes it, and you can look at a leaderboard. And see, I had actually cycled up Gibraltar Road once, kind of on accident. Um, I was, I was going to go halfway, and I was with some friends, and I got pushed to go all the way to the top. But when I looked at Strava, you know, very proud of myself that I'd accomplished this, I found that I was in 7,185th place <laughs> out of 7,195. And I thought, if I can make it to the top, I can, maybe I can go up to like 5,000 or something. Um, but there I was, almost to the top of the mountain, and I was actually like wiping sweat off of my brow and trying to drink it, because I had read once that, that there was like electrolytes in, in your sweat, <laughs> and that if you could harvest your own sweat, that'd be the perfect thing to rehydrate yourself with. So that image of me, and, and by the way, I wasn't actually on my bike at this point. I'm pushing it up the hill. <laughs> That's the image that Psalm 42 starts with. A violent image. A desperate image. This is not about someone who has so much of God that he wants more. This is an image of a person who is so desperate for God, who can't find God, who's distant from God, and knows that if he doesn't have his God, then he will die. In fact, if we, if we look through this, this psalm, we see lots of signs of depression, lots of symptoms of depression. You look at um, verse 6. He talks about these different place names. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. I used to think... These must be beautiful places that, you know, in the history of Israel that God had shown up, that God had done some miraculous thing or they won some victorious battle. But in fact, I think there's a different reason that he's mentioning these. Especially when you look at Mount Mazar, what you find is that this is the furthest place that you can get in Israel away from the temple and still be in Israel. I couldn't find any momentous battle or God's provision through, through the scriptures at this place. What he's saying is, I'm, not only am I thirsting for God in desperation, I'm, I feel so far away from him that I'm, I'm barely in the same country with him. The land of Jordan, Mount Hermon, these are places that are far away. And so he's, he's using the, the map to chart his own sorrow and his own distance from God. And then, of course, in the same time, saying that he, his soul is cast down. In verse 3, he talks about how he would pour out his soul. 
At night, my tears have been my food day and night when they say to me all day long, where is your God? Insomnia, the loss of appetite. I stay up at night crying and all I have to eat are my tears. In verse 10, he talks about the wound in his bones, this psychosomatic pain, mysterious fatigue. See, his sorrow is actually something that he's feeling in his body at this point. So this is a psalm of desperation. This is a lament in one of the darkest places of the soul. And what he teaches us in this is that faith has many faces. Faith is not always the happy face. It's not always the serene face. Faith, at times, is the sorrowful face, a face of tears, a face of desperation. And I think this is actually comforting for us because it tells us that we don't have to be the strong ones. It tells us that if we're sad, it doesn't mean that we're not godly or that we're not saints because we feel sorrow. What it tells us is that we live in a broken world and we're feeling the weight of that brokenness. And what God says is, don't waste your sorrow, bring it to me. And he puts this prayer in the Bible so that we'll know that he's listening. And what this psalmist tells us is like I said earlier, sometimes the godliest thing we can do is grieve. And this psalm actually gives us a way to guide our grief. It gives us that prototype of a prayer of sorrow. And in this psalm, I think we can look at two things. We can look that at in our sorrow, one of the ways to not waste our sorrow is to talk to ourselves and to talk to God. This is a psalm, this psalm is a conversation, it's a man's dialogue, he's, he's in dialogue with his inner soul, with his inner world, and with God. And that's why we see him saying these, this, this chorus, or this refrain, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? See, he's asking the question, why? What he's trying to do is he's talking to himself, he's processing his emotions, He's not just listening to himself. He's not just experiencing them. He is processing them. And he's asking himself, why do you feel this way? Have you ever done that? Why, why am I so angry? Why am I so disturbed right now? Why am I nervous? Why am I cast down? He's trying to get to the bottom of it. He's trying to understand himself. But he's also reminding himself of what's true. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. See, he's reminding himself of the ways that, the times when he did feel close to God. He's reminding himself of the times when he went into the temple to praise and to worship and he felt God's presence. He's reminding himself that, that he used to lead the processional. They used to be at the forefront. And sometimes we need to do that too. We need to remind ourselves of what's true. But if we look what happened in the next verse, he says, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you. He's saying, I remember the times that I was close, 
but it actually doesn't make me feel better. In fact, it heightens how far away I am now and my need to remember you. And so I think sometimes in our sorrows, one of the things we need to do is realize that that even when we pray and cry out to God, it doesn't mean that our sorrow is going to be healed in that moment. Just like we cry out for any other illness, God doesn't heal us in that moment. Yet we still remind ourselves of God's goodness and his faithfulness, remind ourselves of what is true. Sometimes today we might say it this way, we preach the gospel to ourselves. And this psalmist years ago is giving us the model for that, of being in dialogue, of talking to ourselves, processing our emotions and reminding ourselves of what is true because we need to hear the gospel in the deepest, darkest places. Now you may be saying, when I am in the deepest, darkest place, I can't do that. I can't bring myself to preach the gospel to myself. And that's why we need each other. You know, I've said the same thing. There are many times where I've been speaking to my counselor and, and I say things that, that I hear people say in my office all the time. And he says the same things that I say to people all the time. And I say, why can't I understand this? I say this every day. And I realize, what if God designed us that way? What if God designed us to need one another to be reminded of what's true? Yes, we remind ourselves. Yes, we preach the gospel to ourselves, but we also need other people around us to do that for us when we're too weak and when our faith is weak. And so preach the gospel to yourself, but but also preach the gospel to one another and invite other people. Make room for other people Make room for their sorrow in your conversations and in your relationships. You know, I hear a lot of people in my office, they will apologize for their tears. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to get you down. And I tell them, you never have to apologize for that. You know, someone may may say, well, I don't want to ask how someone's doing because then what if it gets messy? And it may be, it may, that may be the case. I have walked people through the doors of, of a hospital. Um, and, and when that happens, yes, it may ruin your afternoon, but it may save someone's life. So make room in your life for one another's sorrows. And the way we can do this is because we're in good company Um, We're in good company because we have this psalm that teaches us to do this, but we're also in good company because the psalmist tells us that we must not just talk to ourselves or talk to one another, but ultimately we must talk to God. See, the, the way to waste your sorrow is to keep it to yourself, to numb it, to move on. But the way to to make use of your sorrow is to bring it to God in prayer and to talk to him. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? This psalmist brings his sorrow, and he lists his sorrow. In all those ways that we mentioned earlier, he describes his experience to God. Now, you may read this and think, now this doesn't sound like a psalm of faith. This sounds like someone who's saying, why have you forgotten me? Where are you, God? 
But think of it this way. How much faith does it take to bring that to God? What must you believe about God to pray like this? See, this, this person believes that God is listening, that God cares, that God wants to hear his sorrows. He believes that there is room for his sorrows in God's story. And this whole psalm is a prayer. And then if you notice the inscription, it's actually given to the choir master to be sung on a national level, to be sung in the temple, to bring other people these same words to lift up to God in prayer. And the reason why is because they believe that God cares and wants us to pray this way. And he cares so much that he actually inspired these words and put them in his Bible and says, this is what your prayer life can look like. You can bring your sorrows to me. And so there's, we're in good company because Christians throughout history have struggled with depression. Good, godly saint, saints have struggled with depression. So we're, we're in good company. And we're even in the good company of the psalmist. We're even in good company of God who hears us and wants us to bring our sorrows to him. But we're in good company of the God who actually knows sorrow. See, God is the God of sorrow. Yes, he is joyful. Yes, he, he experiences joy and he is true blessing. But in God and in the life and the heart of a Christian, joy and sorrow are not mutually exclusive. And so what God tells us is that there, there's room for our sorrow in prayer because he is the God of sorrow. Isaiah 53 tells us this, prophecy of Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And in the garden of Gethsemane, on the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus says these words. He said, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. See, even Jesus knew sorrow. Even Jesus wept over the death of his friend and wept over the city of Jerusalem. So when we bring our sorrows to God, when we talk to him with our sorrows, we come with the confidence of knowing not just that he's listening, but knowing that he too has experienced sorrow, that he too is acquainted with grief, that he is identified with us, that Jesus became incarnate and suffered in this world in the ways that we suffer. And so when we pray our sorrows, we bring them to a God who knows sorrow. He is the God of the sorrowful. He is the God of the depressed. He's the God who knows sorrow. And when Jesus says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death, we see that he takes his sorrow and our sorrow to the cross. And there we see that it actually becomes meaningful because we know that even our depression and our sorrow will be redeemed. And in the last pages of the Bible, we get this beautiful assurance of how the story will end. And I love the way he says it. God says that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Like a father holding a child, wiping away the tears. This is the God we serve. If you know him, then you will bring your sorrows to him and you will see that he has made room for your, your sorrow in his story and he has entered into our story to become the man of sorrows so that he can heal all sorrow 
So the way not to waste our sorrow is to pray. And we do this with faith, even if it's only a shred of faith and we can't feel God. We're pleading with him to show up just like this psalm. Even if we, we don't even know our own words and all we have is Psalm 42 to turn to and pray. We pray in faith knowing that he is the only thing that can ultimately heal us. His kingdom is the only true cure. While there may be lots of ways to seek treatment, his kingdom is the only true cure for our sorrows when he heals this world and everything that is broken. On that day, he will turn our tears into laughter and our sorrow into a deep, abiding, unbreakable joy. Now, these prayers that we bring to him may not always bring us comfort. They may be cold comfort, reminding us of what's true, reminding us that God is listening even when we don't feel like it. But sometimes they do. Sometimes in prayer, you will find the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I'm reminded of um, the book, The Last Battle by C.S. Lewis. It's the last story in the Chronicle of Narnia, uh, Chronicles of Narnia series. There's a prince uh, named Prince Tyrion who um, has, has found himself in a dark place. His world is turned upside down. He's bound, tied to a tree, left to die. Some soldiers are going to come back and, and kill him later. And they're tied to that tree. He cries out in what could be considered a prayer to Aslan, who is the creator of Narnia. And he called out, Aslan, 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 come and help us now. And we're given these words. It says, but the darkness and the cold and the quietness went on just the same. Let me be killed, cried the king. I ask nothing for myself, but come and save all Narnia. And still there was no change in the night or the wood, but there began to be a kind of change inside Tyrion. Without knowing why, he began to feel a faint hope, and he felt somehow stronger. I'm going to end by giving us a chance to do this very thing. Um, I'm going to ask the musicians to come forward, and they're going to lead us in a time of reflection. And I invite you to talk to yourself. Ask yourself, why am I feeling what I'm feeling? Maybe you're not depressed today. Maybe it's something else. And talk to God. Bring it to him. If not for yourself, then, then surely you know someone and love someone who struggles and is full of sorrows today. And then they're going to give us a chance to sing these very words, the words inspired by this very psalm. And maybe as we do this, our hearts too will become somehow stronger and we will feel a faint hope.